good evening. Um, I used to wonder where all my friends were, but now they have all come out of the woodwork after they read the Straits Times. And I see quite a number of them here all prepared to embarrass me and promising that they've drunk lots of coffee and they won't sleep through a lecture on, on the economy. Um, I also, at the same time, feel a bit like, like a person who's sort of accidentally written a novel and it becomes a hit and then you sort of have a writer's block now and you wonder what are you going to do next. There are not a lot of other elephants in the room. Um, I dealt with one earlier. I'll deal with a sort of antelope today and it will kind of, by the fifth lecture, it will be about the, the mouse in the room. Um, I generally don't follow a lot of blogs, but uh, my, my research assistant, Andrew, has been very diligently sending me all the comments in the blogs and so on. And I guess the only thing I can conclude is that um, if you're unpopular with everybody, then you must be doing something right. Because, and it's also an indication, I think, of the type of people that follow different type of media. In all the blogs, the comments are, this whole thing must be a stooge of the PAP. How can he say that the PAP might reduce in dominance in 15, 20 years' time? It's going to happen at the next election. The PAP will be thrown out. <laughs> and then you get letter writers to the Straits Times reflecting the kind of people they are, saying this ungrateful guy, even questioning the dominance of the PAP, the PAP will last forever. So that's the two sides of the picture I've been, I've been getting. The only gratification I've gotten so far is to, be, is to have been mistaken for a professor. There was one blog that I followed, and I even keep it, because it keeps on saying Professor Ho, Professor Ho. <laughs> so that's quite nice. But unfortunately, um, I don't exactly feel like a professor here. I feel very much more like, uh, like a university student who's got a term paper to prepare, and the weekend before you have to hand it up, you're totally desperate, wondering what you're going to say, because you really don't have a clue. And I think my children and my wife can attest to that. They have to live with me while I fret around and say, what am I going to say next? So as I did say in Mothership, um, this is a live cooking show. So welcome to the live cooking show with a lot of different ingredients. This, this second lecture series is about, supposed to talk about the Singapore economy in the next 50 years. So again, you have to be prepared that in when we talk about 50 years, it's talking about a longer time frame. So on one hand, I'll be more safe because I'm not talking about anything that will be, that any of us, except the very young people here, will live long enough to see whether it's correct or not in terms of uh, predictions. But at the same time, it allows us to probably roam uh, more freely. As we all know, you know, economists usually overlay these standard uh, boom-to-bust business cycles on on traditional forecasts, and they extrapolate currently foreseeable trends into different scenarios, where for them, long-term actually means 10 years. So this is sort of dealing with known knowns, and it accounts really for about 90% of forecasting models. And then, of course, there's the crystal ball gazing that borders on futurology. Notions like artificial intelligence, space travel, stem cell organ regeneration, global viral epidemics, Armageddon-like climate change, and umpteen other really neat stuff that you, you see when you watch science fiction movies. Now, these are, I guess you would call them, unknown unknowns. Now, in between, I think it's the biggest challenge for think tank tenants or wannabe academic fellows like me, and that's the realm of the known unknowns, a, a netherworld between 
predictive forecasting and irresponsible speculation, where perhaps the probability of events occurring is a pretty even 50-50. And I think the biggest known unknown facing us in the next 50 years is trying to figure out the impact to Singapore of what is already clearly going to be the most disruptive economic change in the past 200 years. And that event can be summarized by a very short quote in The Economist magazine. And I quote, the modern digital revolution with its hallmarks of computer power, connectivity, and data ubiquity is disrupting and dividing the world of work on a scale not seen for more than a century. Vast wealth is being created without many workers. And for all but an elite few, work no longer guarantees a rising income. And it's like a massive tsunami originating in the middle of the ocean and hurtling towards all coastal countries. But how this tsunami is going to affect each country, as we saw with the Asian tsunami, is still unknown. But every, every country that sees a tsunami coming towards it better be prepared. We do know from history that every technological disruption displaces some jobs, but that usually after a short, painful transition, it creates more jobs, either by increasing consumer power or through ancillary employment from the initial technology, it enables everyone to be better off. Lower productivity jobs and lower value-added enterprises give way to those higher on the skills and value-added ladder in an ongoing process which the economist Joseph Schumpeter called creative destruction, a concept that I think most of us are familiar with. In Singapore, we went through this in the mid-1980s, and we are right in the midst of another economic restructuring now. But is it different this time around? What is alarming governments and academics alike is the pace of the digital revolution. It is so fast, it's displacing workers in a far larger numbers than before, across the entire spectrum of the economy, and in a supreme irony, it's rendering some low-paid jobs more viable than higher-skilled ones. Previous technological change was sort of linear in speed. But digital disruption is exponential in acceleration. Previous technological change automated manual work. Digital change automates both cognitive and manual work. Any kind of routinized work, even of high cognitive order, can be done by computers, robotics, and artificial intelligence. And so, ironically, the job of the office cleaner is actually more assured than that of the insurance claim adjuster or the IT call center consultant, both of which are back office jobs which might require university degrees but are routinized. The job-destroying power of the digital revolution is frightening. A recent Oxford University study analyzed 700 occupations and it concluded that 47% of these occupations can be computerized and gotten rid of. Another study projects that up to half, up to half of the types of jobs that are available today in any normal economy will have been destroyed in 10 years. Singapore is particularly exposed to the digital revolution. 
without disproportionately high dependence compared to other ASEAN economies on foreign MNCs engaged in precisely those businesses which can be digitally disrupted. Now, government is exhorting everyone to increase our productivity, to justify higher wages, but the danger is that automation may actually leapfrog us and render that particular higher skilled job obsolete before we've trained the worker, or more, more ominously, ourselves to undertake that job. Labor markets are hollowing out and polarizing between the higher skilled and lower skilled jobs and with very little employment in the middle. This known unknown is one of the biggest challenges for Singapore in the next half century, not only in terms of its ramifications for employment, but also for worsening income inequality. I just saw a little clipping today in the Today, magazine, Today newspaper where it talked about the so-called unhappiness of Singapore workers. We scored lower than other countries and so on. But one thing that was interesting, if you looked at it in detail, that the occupations where people were most unhappy were those working in MNCs, in banks, and in precisely those businesses which are in the middle of being disrupted. And they found that, in fact, the lower skilled occupations had a light higher happiness index. And I wonder whether we are beginning to see the impact of this change. I'll be asking two questions of our known unknowns. First, has the strategy that has enabled Singapore to rise from third to first world in one generation, has it run out of steam in the new economy? Must it be radically altered or even replaced? And for example, does the digital economy dictate that hitherto key economic pillars such as manufacturing be replaced by a pure services economy? And secondly, what adjustments to the fundamentals of our strategy may be required in the light of these known unknowns? Let me turn to the first question, that of our economic strategy. Singapore is the only, it's the only fully sovereign and independent nation with such amazing disproportion between its landmass and population size. Sort of like a, I know it won't sound nice to ourselves, but in reality, it's sort of like a dwarf with an oversized head. <laughs> it's not any better than Little Red Dot, I know, but, but that's what it is. We are tiny in body size, but huge in terms of our total brain power and in our economic maturity. Monaco, Liechtenstein, Macau, and even Hong Kong, which is really double the size of Singapore, I don't think they count because they're essentially protectorates. They have no sovereign foreign policy, nor military capability, nor broad economic capabilities. Very narrow capabilities only. And yet, despite the absence of a hinterland, Singapore has chosen a path of economic development which is unprecedented elsewhere. And that is to replicate a comprehensively multi-sectoral developed economy comprising different manufacturing industries as well as different service sectors on a landmass marginally larger than the resort island of Phuket and with a total GDP already larger than all of Malaysia, which is four times larger than us in terms of population. I suppose that's the power of necessity. What Singapore's leaders did immediately upon an independence more thrust upon them than desired was to embark on what I'll call, the, very simplistically, the three L's strategy. The first L for location. Building upon Singapore's 
historic choke point between East Asia and Europe to ensure that it remained the maritime trading center between these two worlds, and then leveraging off its location to be the regional aviation hub and finance center. Second, land. Intentional intervention against free market principles for allocation of scarce land to achieve very purposeful and targeted national objectives ranging from affordable public housing to industrial estates for foreign manufacturers. And third, labor. A liberal policy towards foreign workers to keep costs low while continually upgrading skills and the productivity of Singaporeans to ensure competitiveness against neighboring countries. Now, what are the threats to each of the three L's of the strategy, and what are the possible responses? The first L is for location. Is our hub status declining into irrelevance as global trends create new hubs or even renders the whole notion of hubs obsolete? Climate change has already opened a year-round ice-free Arctic passage between the massive economies of Northeast Asia and Europe, and that may eventually bypass Singapore. Massive investments in rail and road networks will now allow every part of China to access ports in the Indian Ocean or carry cargo across Russia and Central Asia to Europe directly without passing through the Straits of Malacca. Changi Airport and Singapore Airlines are challenged by the rise of Middle Eastern airports and airlines which have siphoned away much of the so-called kangaroo route between the UK and Australia. And the rise of numerous world-class airports in China has resulted in direct flights between the rest of the world and Chinese cities, bypassing Singapore. Another hub-based activity is financial services. The rise of China has created a very strong Northeast Asian financial cluster comprising Shanghai, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Seoul. If you look further westward, Dubai, Doha, and Abu Dhabi effectively service South and Central Asia and Africa. And with Sydney servicing Australasia, that leaves Singapore as the financial services center for largely only Southeast Asia. And even that circle is shrinking. Bangkok is going to be the center for Myanmar and the sort of Indochina of old, the countries of Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. And with Indonesia's newfound dynamism and confidence, would Jakarta still see Singapore as its New York or develop its own? Certainly, if capital markets are anything to go by, Singapore Stock Exchange has in the past decade fallen considerably behind other centers like Hong Kong. Now, these challenges are not going to result in a sudden or dramatic decline in Singapore's strategic role. Instead, it may be a long, slow slide. The history of Venice, always touted as the Renaissance global city which Singapore should emulate, also has its less popularized dark side. We all know how Venice rose to be the hub of east-west trade with its terminus of the overland Silk Road on one hand and on its other, its maritime opening into the Mediterranean world, which was the center of Western civilization at that time. What we may remember less is how the slow decline of Venice began with new shipbuilding technologies which enabled the Atlantic-facing seafaring nations like England, Spain, France, and Portugal to discover the new world. This irrevocably led to the decline of the Mediterranean as a center of the Western world, but it was so slow that only backward-looking historians have noticed it. 
if we fast forward a few hundred years from now, would a similar strategic vulnerability have already started affecting Singapore, but we're not aware? Has it already begun, but we remain happily ignorant, like the proverbial frog nonchalantly cooking to death without so much as a croak because the water is rising in temperature so slowly and the frog doesn't know it's dying because he's also festooned with lots of global awards for competitiveness and being number one in this and that. What about the second L, land? Are we simply running out of it despite ceaseless reclamation? Every time I fly in and out of Singapore, I look out the window and bingo, that's our next, um, well, we should not speak about it here, but that is more of our future townships. And is the high cost of making manufacturing so unviable that we should simply get out of it? It is, a, is it also making affordable home ownership an unachievable goal for future generations? The two countries most similar to Singapore in size of, pop, in, in size of population are Denmark and Finland. If you Google this and you look, up, you look at them, Singapore is right there immediately above, immediately below in size, Denmark and Finland. They're also quite similar in gross economic output, with Denmark slightly larger and Finland slightly smaller in terms of total GDP. But Denmark's landmass is 60 times larger and Finland is 485 times larger than Singapore. This little red dot intended as an insult by President Habibi is a reality. And the whole point of having a large landmass is to benefit from a symbiotic metropolis, metropolis hinterland development strategy. But again, Singapore is the only independent nation in the list that you find in Wikipedia of over 200 nations with a metropolis, but not the slightest hinterland. And attempts to create proxy hinterlands in southern Johor, uh, the Rio Islands, or in China, they haven't blossomed to become the growth triangles that they were touted to be some 10, 15 years ago. They may still be profitable ventures, they may attract tenants, but a proxy hinterland not governed by the same set of laws or the same government isn't truly a hinterland. So if we're running out of land, should we not focus on high value added services and abandon a manufacturing strategy? Hong Kong and Singapore some two decades ago had roughly the same 20% of their GDP devoted to manufacturing. Hong Kong has abandoned manufacturing totally, totally, 100% for the services route, while Singapore on the other hand has consistently kept manufacturing to about 20% of its economic output. Is this a misplaced commitment? Now finally, the other big issue involving land scarcity is its impact on the price of public housing. To the extent that worsening wealth inequality is a growing economic and social problem, is our land pricing policy serving the needs of our people? What indeed is the value of a rising per capita GDP if the cost of our homes per capita is rising even faster? The Singapore housing landscape comprises three distinct markets. The HDB first home or entry level market, the HDB resale market, and of course the private property market. The globalization of residential property ownership in recent years has driven Singapore private home prices, as we all know, 
to prices closer to London and New York levels. The HDB resale market, deregulated in the past decade to enable public housing owners to enjoy asset enhancement, enha enhancement has also largely moved in tandem. But the results were paradoxical. HDB owners do not feel richer, as research has found. Unlike large countries with hinterlands where urban homeowners could monetize their homes and move to the city outskirts or say to retirement communities in scenic but inexpensive locales, Singaporeans are generally not able to monetize their homes unless they immigrate or they downgrade, which really is a loss of face in most cases. And they certainly don't feel richer simply because their homes now seem to be more valuable. Economists have, that have done research on this have not detected any positive wealth effect on consumption. Now, that was, of course, not the case 20 years ago when homeowners could upgrade without the same cost as today. But since resale deregulation, rising home prices have only benefited the already rich private property owners. Studies have concluded that rising prices actually channel income distribution away from own-use buyers, whether first-time or upgraders, towards developers, banks, property investors, and speculators. As two NUS economists, Tilak Abesing and Wong Yen Hao, noted in a research paper, and I quote here, it is this redistributional aspect of rising property prices that could add to widening income gaps, unquote. Exactly how affordable is housing in Singapore? There's quite a lot of debate on this, and there's no absolute certainty. The 10th Demographia International Housing Affordability Survey, conducted just a year ago, it uses an index which takes into account the average sale price of housing versus average in annual income of a household. If housing costs exceed three times annual household incomes, warning bells should ring. Now, Singapore's rating of 5.1 actually puts it on the quote-unquote severely unaffordable category. But Demographia has, their data is not encompassing the entire spectrum of the housing markets here, and they only use HDB resale prices and not entry-level prices for their data. And even if you use their probably inflated level because they use not the accurate data, we are still three to four times more affordable than Hong Kong. And compared to Vancouver, San Francisco, San Jose, Sydney, Melbourne, Auckland, we are, our performance has been quote-unquote stellar according to demographia. But incidentally, we're still more expensive than Tokyo and Osaka, but that may be more a reflection of how their economies have stagnated than as to how expensive we are. And very recently, the government is keenly aware of this problem. It's it's introduced or enhanced measures such as the special CPF housing grant to help lower income people to be able to buy their first subsidized home. But the whole issue of housing affordability in Singapore is not entirely clear, and it's going to be a very important issue going to the next 50 years precisely because we are not a country with a hinterland where you essentially move from rising prices in New York, you move to Florida, rising prices in London, you move to places outside London. You, there's not many places you can move out of in Singapore, and with a improving economy and with totally finite land, housing affordability is an issue. As for the last L, labor, I think the same doubts plague this resource as with land, but it's more intractable, of course, because it involves human lives. 
And whereas the dilemma of land scarcity is largely one of pricing and allocation priority, labor scarcity, cost, and productivity are related in extremely complex and sometimes actually contradictory ways. When you add in foreign versus local lab labor, the issues are even more intertwined. Now, having laid out what I think are the possible challenges to our strategy, the three L's of the strategy, I guess my second job here is to identify possible changes to the three L's to, in order for it to re remain relevant for the next 50 years. Let me start by saying that I believe that the first L, the issue of location, is a challenge more easily surmounted with adroit rebalancing. The second L of land may require a more fundamental rethink about how to ensure home affordability and a possible new role for the Housing and Development Board, my little giraffe in the room, which I will touch on later. The third L, labor, may justify relooking at our immigration and our educational policies. The first L is location. How do we maintain our competitiveness as Singapore's strategic location may decline in ways I pointed out earlier? And I believe that the answer is in creating several critical ecosystems of business activity as we are now doing. To create critical ecosystems that are so elaborately interrelated that they cannot be reconstructed by competitors and are the result of continual incremental improvements over decades and can stand their own in global competitiveness regardless of geography. Let me highlight some examples of these ecosystems which we have been building over 20 years. Aviation is one. Changi Airport and Singapore Airlines may, and I think probably will, decline in importance. But if we add to our early start as an aviation hub, global capability in aviation leasing, financing, and insurance, if we have the top engine repair and maintenance by very skilled technicians, if we attract the most sophisticated avionics and small precision components manufacturers here, if we create a support environment of local SMEs which can service the outsourced work of the MNCs that are here for aviation, and if we add to all of that cutting edge research in our universities on the digital technologies related to the future of aviation, if we do all that, I think there will be at most one or two other global competitors to Singapore in this field. And it ain't gonna be Dubai, it ain't gonna be Abu Dhabi, and it ain't gonna be Shanghai or anywhere else. Even though the aviation traffic going through Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Shanghai may be easily overtaking Singapore. The same is true in the life sciences. There are diseases more prevalent among East Asian racial groups or more prevalent in our climatic zones than elsewhere in temperate countries. The ecosystem required to have a cutting edge life sciences ecosystem includes not only our universities, also our hospitals. It requires technicians and scientists and a host of supporting services, which again, can provide opportunities for SMEs. The same is true in other knowledge intensive creative industries, such as information and communications technology. And even the oldest heavy industry to invest in Singapore, as Mr. Lee knows very well, the petroleum refining industry, it's not a sunset industry by any means. It's continually upgraded over the past decades 
to now include a wide range of not only downstream products, but ancillary services such as oil and gas futures trading. It will involve even LNG storage and underground rock caverns. And the same is true for financial services, where a regional advantage some 30 years ago has been parlayed into a global leading position in wealth and funds management or forex trading, even though other kinds of regional advantages have declined. So I think this strategy that we have embarked on and are incrementally growing is good for another 50 years. But of course, the purposeful, deliberate selection of specific industries as the winners of tomorrow is itself pretty risky. It requires a judicious balance between planning and market forces and close collaboration between policymakers and industry. Another risk, of course, is the very expensive link between applied research and product development. Research funding cannot always have immediate commercial applications, and yet funding cannot be open-ended. Finding the right balance will again require clear, far-sighted, but accurate judgment. And finally, even if Singapore's geographic location becomes less strategic in a global context, the eventual creation over the last 30 years has been talked about, and certainly over the next 50 years, it will finally come about. The creation of a genuine ASEAN economic community with a real homogenous market of over 700 million people will finally create opportunities for SMEs. When I was a young journalist, I was already happily writing about tariff-free ASEAN. 30 years later, it still hasn't really happened, but 30 years from now, I presume it will finally happen. I see our diplomats nodding, uh, hopefully. But at the same time, there are other risks, because any of us who have traveled in other ASEAN countries will recognize that the SMEs of these other countries are certainly as hungry and as aggressive as we are. Let's look at the second uh, land. I had identified two challenges, the viability of manufacturing in the face of land shortages and housing affordability. Let me dispense with the first one relatively quickly. I think that on the first challenge, and I mention it only here because there's a lot of critics about our manufacturing strategy, I think there's no evidence that manufacturing of high-value sophisticated products require more space or labor than the service economy. In fact, it may even be the other way around. You just even think about it. The output per, per square meter of space or worker is probably multiple times higher in a life sciences production plant than in a food court. So the choice really is a false dichotomy if one chooses between services and manufacturing, as Hong Kong actually has found to its great detriment. Hong Kong now has a very fragile economy of only one on one end, very high end financial services, property of course, and everything else below that is very, very low skilled. And that's the big mistake Hong Kong has made by moving out of manufacturing. The choice is not between services and manufacturing, it's between low and high valued activities of any kind. And particularly in the new economy with its customized on-demand production. Don't think of large factories with thousands of people. You're looking now at 3D printing of as-needed components. There will almost be no distinction between services and manufacturing. Knowledge creation leading to product creation will in fact be a seamless process. Medical research leading to drug manufacturing on-demand or the design and then production of nanotechnology components. These are just a few examples. So I just wanted to dispense with that because there's quite a lot of debate and quite a lot of people who are saying 
we should get out of manufacturing and go totally into services, and I believe it would be a tremendous mistake. Now, let's go on to the giraffe in the room. The second challenge of housing affordability is more intractable and perhaps requires a more radical approach. How, let me, let me quote from a research paper, the same one I had earlier quoted from. A quote here, it says, the average growth rate of lifetime income for cohorts born after 1960 has been about four to 5% per year which has also been the average growth rate of per capita disposable income since 1975. Property prices should fall in line with this trend. And it goes on to say, although it is difficult to avoid property price cycles, policies could be devised to reduce the amplitude of these cycles. In this regard, it is worth questioning why one should let the private housing market, which accounts for only about 20% of the housing stock, to dominate the price trends of the entire housing market and erode housing affordability. There are two critical implications from this observation. First, that property prices should perhaps be more actively managed so that they match the growth rate of lifetime income, or about 4 to 5% per year. And second, that in terms of pricing, the tail should not wag the dog. Public housing prices should perhaps determine private housing prices and not the other way around. Both of these suggestions, therefore, point to one possible conclusion, that of the need for a national housing price regulator. Before private developers and free market economists shout foul, I think we should realize that competition within regulated price bands is already found in other economic sectors in Singapore. It's nothing new in electricity, in telecommunications, for example. And perhaps even more pertinent, we should recognize that we already have price regulation in housing through the EDB, the HDB unilaterally setting the price of first homes. One objective of a national housing price regulator would be to integrate and to influence the pricing of the three housing markets, HDB entry level, HDB resale, and private housing, so that the whole market is not led by private housing, which in turn is led by foreign demand. Another goal of a housing price regulator would be to have prices strike a balance between housing as a utility, which is the goal of young first-time owners, and housing as a wealth asset, a store of value, which is the goal of older owners or investors. Singapore has never really had a totally free market system anyway for land utilization or pricing. It's always been to, subordinated to national, economic, or social objectives. And this social democrat orientation of our pioneer political leaders is what fundamentally differentiates Singapore from Hong Kong's laissez-faire pro-oligopoly economy. Affordable home ownership, our pioneer leaders fervently believed, underpinned the Singapore identity and was the bedrock of social stability. And that goal must remain a paramount objective of political governance, not the dictates of the free market. Now, the, in its early years, the primary task of the new PAP government was to build massive numbers of affordable public housing in the quickest time possible. There were no private sector developers whom the government could could cooperate with to undertake such a massive and ambitious program. 
So HDB became the biggest housing developer in Singapore by necessity. 50 years on, that hasn't changed. Our public housing programs today resemble that of a command economy. The only country that produces as much public housing as us is North Korea. For almost 40 years until 2002, young Singaporeans essentially queued for a flat in their desired location and were allocated based on availability. This was called the Registration for Flat System, or RFS. Typical of a planned economy, but totally necessary at that time, supply was based on planned projections by civil servants and not based on fluctuating market demand. But of course, when you have that, when the Asian financial crisis hit in 1997, HDB was left with 20,000 empty flats, which unlike a private developer, it could not unload by price discounting because there would have been huge political uproar by people who bought at higher prices. And so the RFS program, as we all know, was suspended. It's been replaced by the Build to Order, or the BTO program, under which, as the name suggests, HDB blocks are built only when sufficient units are sold. That's led to an approximate four-year wait for a flat. In 1960, HDB had a total housing block of 120,000 units. This figure rose rapidly, and as of 2013, with the kind of precision Singaporeans like to know, that number now stands at 933,367 units. That, as I said, I think it's the largest housing developer in the world, except possibly North Korea, for which I can't get statistics. Certainly China produces no public housing. As can be expected, a planned economy for housing and a free market economy for the rest of the country is going to have contradictions. From 2002 to 2010, as we all know, not enough flats were built, and this led to a backlog of unmet demand with the electoral consequences. The government then ramped up supply again in the past two years. In the past two years, HDB has built, in a single year, an average of 26,000 units per year. And that is close to the total amount built in the four years from 2006 to 2010. So the ramp up has been in one year equal to four years. This kind of market dislocation is not fundamentally different. That the problems which arise when Chinese planners decide how much steel the country needs and tells, gives an order to all the steel mills to produce. The mismatch of supply and demand not only leads to unhappy customers with all the political consequences, it also leads to distortions in the entire construction and building supply sector and also in the influx of foreign workers. And furthermore, increasingly affluent and choosy customers are not going to be happy with the lack of variety which a monopoly public housing developer provides. Furthermore, as we've also found out, it's getting increasingly difficult to determine who should qualify for public housing as we become more affluent. We've seen executive condominiums with the EC scheme to satisfy the so-called sandwich class. Then we had DBSS, or design, build, and sell scheme, which was a further case of mission creep as HDB entered increasingly into the private sector market. And that angered a lot of public housing users who felt that resources were being devoted, resources of the government, of taxpayers, 
were being devoted to a new elite within the public housing system. The scheme was short-lived and scrapped. So it has become increasingly clear to me as I got involved in this that there is another elephant in the room with its legs in every sector of the country, from social identity to economy to family to sustainability, and that elephant is HDB. And again, as with the case of the PAP, its elephantine status is ironically due to its success, not due to its failures. With the HDB, this elephant in the room that dominates with its four legs every sector, every part of human life in Singapore, it's due to its success in having provided mass affordable housing, one of the true achievements in our third to first world ascent. I really challenge anyone to think of any country, any housing board that has delivered its mission with the same success that HDB has done. But the sheer dominance of the landscape by this elephant does warrant some questioning as to its proper role, not today, not tomorrow, or even five, 10 years from now, but in the Singapore of the next 50 years. When we eventually approach our 100th anniversary in 2065, should some 80% of our housing stock still be designed and priced by one developer, that one developer whose sense of what the market wants and should pay will simply determine what we get? In every affluent and developed society, consumer tastes have become far more complex and nuanced to be served by a single product supplier. In an extremely land-scarce economy, private sector demand, and particularly from wealthy foreigners, can't be the price sector for the rest of the housing markets. So it may be timely at this moment, this juncture as we look at our 50 years in the past and look 50 years in the future, it may be timely for HDB to consider a gradual and phased, and I emphasize gradual and phased exit over the next decades from its role as a housing developer in order to focus on a new dual role. First, as master land developer for entire new towns or districts, and second, as the regulator of housing prices in these areas, and to get out of the developer business entirely. Some of the functions that this new reimagined HDB would do would parallel what the URA does in town planning, but going beyond that, it wouldn't be a planner. HDB would be a master land developer, the concept of which we've seen in many other countries. It would invest in all the town infrastructure. It would develop the master plan. It, would, it could even possibly play a developmental role and invest in large, large-scale, low-return, but labor-saving prefabrication technologies for contractors to avail themselves of. But its most important and sensitive function could be the setting of residential product sale price caps for each land parcel, which would then, of course, be auctioned off to private developers. And the competition by private developers on detailed design, quality features, and so forth would ensure that market forces dictate, but within residential price ranges set by HDB. Not price ranges for land, but price ranges for the final uh, product unit. If we did that, all housing developments would become private. There'll be a single master land developer selling, private, selling parcels to private developers. There'll be no more 
private versus public uh, divide. And then HDB estates will be real towns with housing of different price ranges so as to erode the social distinctions that we still have and should not have in the next 50 years. Do you live in an HDB estate or do you live in Ardmore Park? It should be if you live in the new Angmokyo or the new, new Pasiris, they could be extremely expensive units there and very cheap units there because HDB does the planning to ensure that there is an organic community of different income levels all living in the same town. If I were to take a somewhat tongue-in-cheek approach and express the benefits of a reconstituted HDB in traditional Chinese Communist Party style, I would say the advantages would be the, the five no mores. Okay, we're all familiar with the Chinese, five no mores. If we did this, this new HDB, it would, n it would be no more monopoly developer for public housing, no more supply and demand imbalance, as the private sector is going to sort this out through the invisible hand and will undertake market risk so that if you happen to develop too many cheap units or too many expensive units, the market will sort it out. There'll be no more private versus government developers as all housing will be undertaken by private developers. The government only regulates home unit price caps. No more social stratification or social divide based on HDB versus private housing. And finally, no more private or foreign demand setting prices, as government can release land at lower price caps to bring down prices should prices go up. And to continue, the function of HDB will be the, the two regulates. Regulate the supply and type of residential land and regulate the residential unit sale price ranges for land parcels, which are then, of course, auctioned to private developers. I think I could get into this. This kind of no, five no mores, two regulates, actually clarifies the mind. From a, from a policy perspective, it would be using supply side levers, the supply of land with caps on final product pricing to regulate property cycles, rather than demand side levers, which is to subdue demand through restrictions on debt financing, on taxes, and so on. Now, even if we agree in principle with this five no mores proposal, implementation, I think we have to recognize, is going to take decades. But it may be worthwhile then, if HDB begins to see what the final objective is, it may actually undertake some pilot projects. But we should not be, we should not be complacent about the problems ahead for something as massive as this. Integrating this new model with existing HDB inventory is going to be difficult. But it may be easier when we also think that we have 99-year leases that over the next 50 years may be coming up for expiry. And that is a time when we have to think of new models. The entire issue of leasehold land expiring is an issue that all governments in the region have not yet really dealt with. All governments after 1949. China has only got 70 years and 40-year leases. Indonesia has leasehold. Vietnam has leasehold. So the whole issue of leasehold land, we need to consider, but this is a possible thing to move towards together with the same thing as thinking about leases. Finally, the third L, labor. I think this is perhaps the most complex problem, ranging from job destruction and polarization to stagnant pro productivity and over-reliance on foreign workers. We all know one response has been tried. It's worked, it is painful. 
It's first, it was first attempted in the 1980s to ratchet up the economy through up the skills and, and wages ladder through a forced squeezing on the supply of foreign labor coupled with an economy-wide wage increase. And it led, of course, it did lead to recession. But I think, in retrospect, that strategy did work. And it, it did lay the groundwork for a higher skill, higher cost economy that we have today. So in all likelihood, we're going to have to go through another restructuring, as we're doing now. And this is not going to be the last such restructuring. Singapore's version of creative destruction is going to have to be to undergo periodic, perhaps 20-year cycles of forced restructuring as we ratchet ourselves up the skills ladder because we do not have enough land so that less competitive businesses can simply relocate there. What does deserve worry, however, is worsening income inequality. And there are no magic bullets, only a multitude of measures of which are proposed too. One reason for Singapore's high income inequality is a high wage differential between different job vocations. Among all the OECD economies, Singapore has the highest income differential between a doctor or lawyer on one hand and a construction worker or retail assistant on the other. Our gap, in fact, is double that in Western European countries and even much higher than that in Hong Kong. For example, where the wage gap between a doctor and a construction worker may be four or five times, in Europe, ours is about 10 times. I actually uh, gave a paper on this as an, at an IPS uh, conference with research that IPS helped me to, to conduct. So I'm actually quite familiar with this issue. And there are two, large, two major reasons for this. First, a large workforce of low-cost, low-skilled foreign workers depress the wages of everyone in that wage band regardless of nationality. And secondly, our own educational system creates a large differential in starting salaries between the technical and university graduates. And there are two possible ways to address these two causes of our problems. First, I think we can perhaps devise a more innovative Im immigration program where foreign workers are seen as less of a necessary evil but as one element, and a positive one, in an overall population strategy which does not distinguish so much between foreigner and Singaporean, but recognizes their mutual dependency. Instead of just drastically curtailing their influx, the focus could be on finding ways to drastically increase their wages, skills, and productivity. And very importantly, to provide economic incentives to create desired outcomes. Our current immigration policy, with its punitive foreign worker levy, may be simply counterproductive. It raises the cost of employing them, it does not reduce the demand, but furthermore, it attracts only the lower skilled workers because the better skilled ones prefer to go to countries where the take-home pay is higher. So, and you cannot actually say government benefits because government is not really depending on the foreign worker levy for its, its income. So perhaps the levy could be converted into each worker's deferred savings account, similar to a CPF account, to be withdrawn upon his permanent repatriation so as to ensure good behavior whilst in Singapore. You go and join the Little India Riot, your, your CPF or your levy is gone. 
Immediately and without an increase in cost to employers, the quality of foreign workers will go up since the higher skilled ones will be more attracted here. And the, and the manipulation of both levers, the immediate wage that you get on one hand and the levy on the other hand, will provide instruments for policy adjustment, just as our own planners are able to manipulate the levers of CPF versus salary for our own economic benefit. This two-year use and discard approach to foreign workers, besides being socially less than humane, is just simply bad economics. It'd be far more productive to institute a philosophy of inculcating in-country skills upgrading for foreign workers, with the reward being perhaps a longer work residency, higher payments into their so-called savings accounts. And this conversion of levies into a CPF lookalike for foreign workers, I think is also the most effective way to ensure voluntary repatriation after the long-term residency has expired. Because if we were to give people 10, 20 year residencies, there is the danger of, of going underground after their residency permits are finished, as we've seen in Europe and in America, because they do not have a hold on the foreign worker. I think we should be able to see through foreign workers of talent. And you can even find a very small minority who are self-motivated enough to attain measurably higher skills through training programs, employer certification, and we reward them with longer residency programs. Those who even further aspire upwards to change their careers or become entrepreneurs. And it's not totally unimaginable that some domestic helpers would become nurses, even some construction foremen would become self-employed builders for whom we need and for whom our young are not willing to become. We can even perhaps find for a small minority of people a pathway towards permanent residency and even eventual citizenship. That pathway does not currently exist today. People talk of New York City as an example of how unskilled, uneducated, impoverished immigrants have helped build the most innovative entrepreneurial city in the world. We only need to look back at our own illiterate forefathers who built this nation to perhaps recognize that not only the rich Chinese tycoon who's able to buy his citizenship or the super skilled scientist or the investment banker has the potential to become a citizen. I'm not going to be so romantic as to think that of the 300,000 construction workers we have in our midst, that even 10% would ever aspire to become or can even aspire to become citizens. But I think building that pathway is not only important for the people that we may move along that pathway, it sends a more important message to others who would not choose that pathway. Second, I think education pathways also can be redesigned to help reduce income inequality. As we all know, Singapore is, our educational system is much admired, but we do have a rigid linear pathway that reflects the university bias of the Anglo-Saxon model. The Institutes of Technical Education, or the ITEs, they generally still absorb those who do not do well in normal secondary schools. And although it's changed slightly, the polytechnics still mainly absorb those who don't qualify to go to university preparatory schools, which appropriately are called junior colleges. And university is the apex of a single pathway to educational success. And this is reflected by statistics. The starting salary of a Singapore University graduate is about 30 to 35% higher than a poly graduate. In Europe, that same gap is about 10 to 15%. The gap 
Fosford ITE graduate is much, much higher. This narrower differential in Europe is achieved by their purposefully ensuring that a technical education is generally almost as good as a university degree. Switzerland and Germany practice what they call a dual education system where high school graduates can choose either option. Both the technical education and the university tracks are equally rigorous in their different ways and technical education there is, is an attractive option. It's not a fallback for not being able to enter university. There are possibly two things we can do to reduce the income gap between technical and university graduates. First, we can amend the technical school, meaning the polytechnic educational pathway, so that their students graduate at the same age as university graduates, and therefore, they have closer starting salaries. And this can be easily done, we've seen with the European model, with longer industry attachments, genuine apprenticeship programs, which provides a much deeper and equitably paid work experience and job knowledge for the polytechnic students so that they graduate at the same time as university students. We can also see a lot more intersecting pathways by which early entrance into vocational training can move back into an, the, the pathway towards university. Today, today, if you have an ITE graduate who makes it to NUS, it, it gets headlines. In other countries, it doesn't deserve a headline. And we should have a system where it becomes so normal, there's no headline required for that. Finally, our graduates, our polytechnic students and others, do not have higher starting salaries for yet one more reason. And that is they do not receive sufficient status. Vocational guilds in Europe generate artisanal pride in and status for their members by providing professional certification and self-regulation. In Singapore, this legally recognized authority to, be, to professionally certify your own members and to regulate your own members is only reserved for the traditionally very elite professions such as law and medicine. And my understanding, anecdotally, by talking to some people, is that the power for industry associations to self-regulate and to be able to certify people, which is not resisted by government at all, has actually been resisted by industry, industry associations because the companies there do not want their employees to be certified as professionals because that would allow them to practice on their own. If that is the case, I think government should basically relook at this whole issue. Finally, I'd like to make two soft suggestions, which is not normally associated with hard economics. But just as we talk about corporate culture, social culture, or political culture, there is also an economic culture which shapes how people behave in an economy. My first suggestion is that Singapore can take the lead again over the next 50 years in defining new and more holistic indices for economic progress, which take into account factors like human well-being, environmental sustainability, social cultural development, and so on. Now, before all of you frown too much, and Janadas is already frowning even more than normal, I don't think Bhutan's, I agree with you, sir, I don't think Bhutan's gross national happiness index with its all its touchy feeliness is what we really want. But at the same time, the very traditional indices of GDP and GNP, they're already being accepted, I think, as being far too crude. And worse, they promote a lopsided, unsustainable depletion of resources and destruction of the environment. And lest you think, lest you think that this advocacy for a new and more holistic yard, 
stick of development and economic growth is touchy-feely, I realized, I found out that the Australian Bureau of Statistics has actually launched 10 years ago an ambitious program to conduct what they call MAP, or MAP, Measure of Australia's Progress, which is their attempt to move to find one single indicator tailored to Australia's own unique context, which is to measure Australia's own progress in a more holistic manner. I think there are two self-interested reasons why I suggest this. First, Singapore has already established a reputation as a sustainable city for the future. And getting international acceptance for a measurable yardstick of holistic development can only increase our soft power and our brand positioning globally. And second, and perhaps even more important, there's a need to counter the complacency of affluence with a compelling vision for our young to aspire towards, measured by more than per capita GDP of billionaires per square mile. In other words, even if others don't want to measure themselves against our yardsticks, we should measure ourselves against our own yardsticks and our own unique circumstances. My final suggestion is that inclusion, diversity, and freedom of expression need to be proactively cultivated if we want to attract the best global talent for innovation in knowledge-based creative industries from artificial intelligence to biomechanics. An interesting study once showed a close correlation between those US cities, before some of you who are more sensitive about this topic start to gasp too loudly, an interesting study once showed a close correlation between those US cities with an actively pro-gay culture and the number of high-tech startups and creative enterprises. The study tentatively concluded that gays tend to be disproportionately represented in these industries. Upon further research, however, and Apple CEO Tim Cook notwithstanding, <laughs> they found that this conclusion was not true. The number of gays in any industry is largely the same. Instead, the researchers found that many totally straight, nerdy, geeky, decidedly nerdy people, from scientists to artists to writers, they often interpreted a pro-gay culture, and I'm not trying to promote pro-gay pro hip specifically, I'm just saying that they interpreted a pro-gay culture as a bellwether for tolerance. And the most innovative people are generally very individualistic and even eccentric, and like to live in environments where diversity rather than conformity is a daily ethos. After this first study, people were interested to find out correlations on other areas. They didn't look at gay culture anymore. They found the same correlation between the number of publications, citizens' publications, whether it be blogs or magazines or newspapers, theaters, art galleries in a city with the presence of innovative companies. Because, simply because, again, not because these people who came to all these creative enterprises went to all the, attend all the theaters, plays, and such things. It's because a city that is known for this, these are sending out the signals that they are the symbols of a society which promotes freedom of expression. So the point here is that whilst tourists may come to Singapore for our mega attractions, whether it's car races, casinos, massive plant conservatories, the people we really want, or need, in fact, to attract to Singapore 
to spearhead the entrepreneurial innovation that we need, they come for different reasons. No doubt our clean, safe fiscal environment is important. But beyond that, a culture of freedom, inclusion, and diversity is very important, perhaps even more than tax incentives. So finally, I, I will close with a recollection that I chose to study economics in university not because it was the closest to a respectable science, which I was always bad at, but because I believe that at its very core, economics is about human behavior, human foibles, and human aspirations, and how these collide and collude to enable human society to make mistakes and yet ultimately to progress. And so on the eve of yet another chapter of our 50-year history, I'm confident that we can all come together to ensure that our economy will not only make us materially better off, but that it can, with the proper policies, the proper adjustments to the elephants and the giraffes, and the proper signals we send to our own people and to foreigners, the proper development of the mutual dependency between foreigners and locals and so on, I think we can enable the cohesive diversity which I've always held as a vision to truly be a reality. So thank you all and hope to see you again at the next pop-up lecture on February 5th, which is going to be on another term paper kind of topic, security and sustainability. And thank you for your tolerance and for those of you who nodded off, thank you for not showing it and being very nice to me. Thank you. Good evening. Thanks, Huan uh, Ping, for the Tour de Force, uh, covering uh, a wide uh, number of subjects. And uh, I, I cannot but you know, reflect on the way that you opened, talking about uh, digital technology and the uh, analogy that you used of the tsunami. It's a very scary and emotive uh, imagery of a, of a tsunami. But of course, that, uh, those changes that uh, digitization uh, provide actually are not just uh, threatening, they're also opportunities. And I suppose the, the lesson that I take from that is that if we only fear things and we don't embrace change, if we only want to defend the status quo, then uh, we are going to be swept away. Whereas if we take advantage of the changes, then perhaps, you know, that that new technology, these changes can be used to design these end-to-end uh, -end, uh, businesses, for example, that will secure our future despite changes in location and so on. So, it now is our happy uh, opportunity to ask questions of Kwon Ping. We have several mics in the audience. Uh, could I ask that when you come up, you identify yourself and put your questions uh, succinctly, if possible, uh, rather than make statements. Could we have the first question from the floor? After all that stimulus. <laughs> yes, gentleman here in the front. 
My name is uh, Wee Chui Heng. I'm an architect, uh, urban planner, and I think uh, the suggestion of changing roads for HDB is is uh, quite difficult to accept because I think our achievement of public housing is possible because we have HDB to accomplish this mega scale housing. I want to suggest that now our next role is really to be a model city for the world. And we are like a laboratory where we can achieve this model city vision. And because of the limitation of land resource in Singapore, I'm going to support the idea of building super decks, a second story for Singapore town by town. If you can envisage a futuristic one whole town like Topayo being built that 10 stories above our existing level, then only HDP can do it because they can override all the statutory problems and you allocate parcels of debts of strata titles for private sector to build upon so that every town will soon become a second story town, 10 stories above land and envisage the housing which will satisfy the new generation of people and all the idealism, no traffic, free, everything you can achieve in a pedestrian debt that is 10 stories above. So what do I, I do not want Mr. Ho to abolish that idea of HDB. I think they have a new role to play, the, the new visionary city. Um, but certainly my suggestion was hardly one of abolishing the role of HDB. And if I created that impression, then I would, I, I, I haven't done a good job at all in my lecture. I think my sense is that my main proposition was that HDB's role as a developer could perhaps morph so that it becomes essentially the master developer of land and allow the private sector to actually be the developers of specific pieces of land. As to the specific proposal that we build on top of existing HDBs, I think that it's better left to a um, a seminar to be organized by Heng Chi with King Soon and all the King Soon, Willie and everybody else, the futurologists talk about urban planning. I think some economists would probably argue that it may actually be more, um, more cost effective to tear down the old HDBs and to build then 100-story HDBs rather than building on top of existing ones. But that's going into the area of specific urban planning, which was not my intention here. But certainly that idea, I think, is as workable as any other idea. Hi, good evening, everybody. My name is Hannah. Okay, I'm just going to adjust this a little. Okay, um, I thought about um, what you've talked about in terms of the arts, in terms of um, diversity, as well as how it may cultivate innovation. I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm wondering, do you think we have done well in the recent years to promote the arts in bit to cultivate the appreciation of diversity? Thank you. Have we done enough to promote the um, to, to promote the arts? I should ask the chairman of the National Arts Council. I can only say one thing. If anybody here's of my age group and you remember what the art scene was like in Singapore 30 years ago, and you look at it today, I think you would be absolutely shocked that the changes to the art scene have completely paralleled or even perhaps been more impressive than the physical changes to Singapore skyline. Um, it, is, it is amazing the, how the art scene has, has really flowered. And I think it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's hugely encouraging that there are 
local, there's local talent and international talent coming here. So that to me is far more impressive than having casinos or, or Grand Prix. The fact that we have so many daily activities and manifestations of art in, in every aspect, every medium from visual to performing arts and, and so on. So my answer is yes, I think it is moving along very well. As to whether you have particular comments as to uh, certain other areas should be developed further or not, I think that's that's being more specific about it. But overall, I think it has developed very well. Gentlemen? Uh, my name's Prasoon, and I work for an organization called Billion Bricks. Uh, I, my, actually, I don't have a question, but I just wanted to understand your perspective a little bit deeper than what you explained. Because you started talking about digital revolution and disruptive change and how from a linear change it's becoming more exponential and how the power of change getting into citizenry is making it more democratic. The solutions that you provided were more incremental and, and most of them were top-down, which were government-oriented. Where do you see Singapore in the same digital revolution age that you mentioned in the beginning as it moves forward 50 years with the changes that you've proposed? My frank answer to you is I don't know. I only know from what I read that there is that the, the the digital revolution will have the effect of of essentially disrupting a lot and destroying a lot of jobs in standardized routinized areas which even require cognitive ability and I think my only suggestion in that respect without going into detail is that it perhaps behooves all of us who are engaged in business, in whatever business we are in, to recognize, that's why I use the analogy of a tsunami, that it's coming our way. And in the case of the extra Asian tsunami, some places passed by without the slightest damage, and some places were almost totally devastated. So the analogy there is that all of us in our different industries, and, and industries are so differentiated in an economy like Singapore, from services to manufacturing and so on, it probably behooves all of us to try to understand what that specific tsunami impact may mean for our own business and to take action regarding that. And we may find that certain sectors are not going to be affected and certain sectors are going to be decimated. And that's all I can do at this point. I know that there is actually quite a lot of work going on, including lots of conferences about this topic, which goes into it in a more specific and, and detailed manner, which I can't do here. Uh, I think the other reflection I had, which I started with, was that it's not just destructive, it's also creative. Because I think it would also create opportunities for new businesses, you know, for businesses to reform. So if we only hold on to what we have, yes, it will be destroyed, but it can create new. Yes. My name is Francis Pavery. Uh, I just, I, I do want to delve a little bit into the unknown unknowns, and uh, we can all speculate, but uh, it's a thought that uh, has occurred a number of times, but everybody says, no, no, no. We have never been foreseen as two countries, us and Malaysia. The British didn't see us as that, and we for a while didn't see ourselves as that. And uh, there is lots of benefits, I'm sure. We all will know that if Singapore went back to Malaysia, and Malaysia came back to Singapore. And that combination provides Singapore with lots more opportunities, provides Malaysia with a center for whatever. Of course, the current generation, alas, of course, cannot see that because the pain, uh, the, the breakup was too painful and uh, it will, 
maybe not even in my lifetime. But can you foresee, I mean, East and West Germany went back together, that at some point in time, within the next 50 years, that this combination will go back and lots of all the problems we've talked about may not actually come about? I would, I would say that from a theoretical economic perspective, the logic for a Malaysia and Singapore being one is utterly compelling to the extent that it was the PAP leadership that lobbied very hard for merger. I mean, that is absolutely the case. In my view, the likelihood that this would happen, I would like to give a lecture for the next 200 years, and it might happen. In my view, the, issue, the issues, the, the development direction that Singapore has moved towards, the values that we have developed as totally core to us and what Malaysia has moved towards are so fundamentally different that I cannot possibly see it happening in 50 years. I think another question to ask, which is more germane, that ties in with the issue of security is one of will relations with Malaysia possibly improve more in the next 50 years or will it remain the same or will it worsen? I think that is a very important subject but the issue as to whether Singapore and Malaysia could become one again politically I cannot for the life of me paint a scenario there as to why any Singaporean would ever do it and therefore the only way we would ever be reunited with Malaysia in my view is if it's by physical coercion which means they come here or we go there so let's let's not go there in that topic today let's let's talk about it over security okay but I think it's interesting that the question is asked by uh, you look like you're one of our generation because I think if you look at the young people today they're probably further apart than you know when we were growing up other questions? You see, this, the PP is a lot more interesting topic to talk about than housing or economy. Can I ask a question, Confi? Uh, you, 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 you touched a bit on price control in terms of uh, housing. It's a very uh, fraught subject, of course. Um, it's, it's, it's not at all unusual that you know, the marginal unit sets the price right, for the whole. But uh, I think you're suggesting that uh, we actually create uh, a more managed system which uh, allows public housing to move into the private housing uh, developers' hands. Yes? Okay. Yeah. And I think the other uh, statistic which you raised was the, the fact that, in fact, I think you alluded to it, but you didn't actually give us the numbers, is that the appreciation in terms of the value of housing has actually outstripped um, the income growth of the, of the owners. So, so you know, um, just reflecting today, it was announced that Thomas Piketty's book, On Capital, was awarded the Financial Times Business Book of the Year. And one of his central concerns is that the returns to capital are at a higher rate than the rate of growth of output or incomes. And that he attributes to uh, cause inequalities, unsustainability, and so on. 
Is this, is this something linked to what you're saying? No. Actually, my... I didn't want to get, I, I don't think the discussion here is actually over the philosophical issue as to whether housing prices should be set by the market or not. Because in actual fact, HDB prices are already set by the government. So it's not as if there's a free market. There's only a free market for it in terms of the resale market. So my main issue is not so much, I was trying to point out that we should move towards a system not so much about pricing being set by government because it's already set by government. Housing prices are already set by government. My main point is you have one single developer of housing, which is the HDB. You could still have pricing of housing be determined by HDB, but HDB could simply determine the different prices, the retail prices of different plots of land and say this piece of land you can only sell for three thousand dollars per square foot and your total gfa can only be you know ten hundred thousand square feet and this piece of land is this and that and so on and then let developers come in and um and develop so in that case you 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 do a lot of changes overnight you would not have you would have a lot more differential quality in the market you would have people different developers coming into the market building things but they can only price it at hdb whatever the HDB decides that they price it at. So there would be no issue of inequity. The only thing you would have, of course, is there will be a, a distribution of, of income, which would have gone to government, now goes to a developer. But then you could argue we, are, we, we would then be building a more robust property development market, because right now in Singapore, we all know, unlike in other countries like America or elsewhere, where you can have very small developers and very big developers, in Singapore, you only have very big developers. There are no smaller developers. So HDB coming, giving up its role of being a developer, but in fact, adding on to its role as a price regulator, I think doesn't philosophically affect the primary role of government, which is to still conduct affordable housing at prices set by government in its best judgment as to what prices should be. It's just that you would have better quality, you have differential quality, and you have more competition. And you have HDB focusing on being a regulator and not a producer of housing specifically. And I think we must not also leave aside the economic argument, we must not leave aside the social argument of having 80% of our people living in public housing and 20% living in private housing and over the next 50 years, we have an opportunity to try to break down this, this social divide. So we could separate, really. The, it doesn't have to be HDB. It could be somebody else doing the price regulation. The main difference is that HDB moves out from being the single big developer. Yeah. I mean, my suggestion was, yeah, you could absolutely. It, it's, it's, I, I use this example largely because of my own experience in Singapore Power. I was the first appointed chairman of Singapore Power when PUB was corporatized. And you cannot say, it, we know if you, as an economist, you would know that housing is not the same commodity as electricity or telecom charges, which are much more homogenous. But I think there are parallels here that you had a single monopoly regulator and producer of a good that was PUB. Government privatized it, and then you further privatize it, and now all production of electricity is totally privatized. PUB is the regulator, and EMEA is the pricing mechanism 
through which everybody sells their electricity. So as an analogy, my point is that I think housing could become deconstructed, as it were, to become more like a more like the system we have for power or for uh, telecoms, where you have more competitors in the business. Yes, Chris. Uh, Chris from the IPS, if I may uh, just stay on the topic of, of, of housing uh, and um, pose one question and make, perhaps make a comment. Uh, the first question is, um, uh, you know, the, about your, um, your comment about DBSS and its failure. Um, but wouldn't your um, suggestion of, you know, getting the HDB to become a master developer and, you know, uh, allowing the um, private sector to essentially develop be a similar situation to the DBSS? No, I think I'm completely misunderstood here. I think the DBSS situation is what confuses the whole situation. Because then you have, you, have DB, you have HDB actually being a developer of private housing. It's mission creep going into that area. And it's still a developer of public housing. My suggestion is that HDB should get out of all of building and selling property. It should basically set the maximum price by which a developer can sell a developed project. So it would be a price regulator. And by being and focusing on it being a price regulator, its main focus would be to ensure that you have equity within the system. It actually sets maximum prices. So then HDB doesn't compete with anybody anymore as a developer and allows and there would also be no more social divide between public and private housing. Everything is private housing. Because you could have a wing tie going in there and building something that they cannot sell at a higher price than what HDB is selling today. Because HDB or whichever housing regulator determines the price at which a residential unit can be sold. Yeah, so, so the comment really, well actually now two comments. Um, uh, the, the first is that you know, essentially the HDB is then regulating margins for development in land development in Singapore. And, and then the actual pricing of land um, is determined by, by... By the market, it's auctioned. Well, uh, set by the, you know, the, the regulator, URA in this situation. No, no, it wouldn't be. If, no, you just, just imagine a situation where there's a piece of land today, right? If there's a piece of... The only difference, URA does not set a price at which you can sell the property. So now, let's say, let's say you have a situation now, there's a new town, X. Newtown comes in, HDB develops a new town, invests in the roads and everything else, of course, and then it says this parcel now, with its, all its wisdom of its planning, which it focuses on, and Maine is a planner, it says we need 60% affordable housing for this price bracket, we need 20% for this bracket, and let's save this price bracket for, for the more expensive ones. So it would basically look at these different plots of land and say, okay, now we have an option coming. This piece of land, the total GFA is X, and you have to sell, as a developer, not more than $3,000 per square foot. So people will come and bid for the land knowing that they have to make a margin and knowing that they have to sell for $3,000 a square foot. They will bid for the land and the land price becomes the variable. The fixed invariable is the price at which you sell to the consumer. I, I didn't make it clear, but anyway, I Perhaps, guess I uh, <laughs> We may come back to housing. I suspect housing is a hot subject. There's a lady uh, at the mic. 
Thank you, Mr. Moderator. Um, um, thank you, too, for your lecture, Mr. Ho. My name is Mei Pin. Uh, I'd like to take you up on uh, one of the two soft suggestions that you made uh, towards the end of your lecture. The, the idea for uh, an indicator beyond GDP, GNP, um, I just would like to dig a little bit more into that. Um, I think typically when that suggestion is brought up, the response to that is that we are already measuring all these other things, um, like quality of life, uh, um, uh, infant mortality, everything was on the social, security, environmental, um, arts and culture, and uh, economic um, fields as well. So what I'm wondering is, is, is your suggestion that the act of making a composite of that of all these indicators in itself is, is a valuable thing to do? Or is there something that you think we should be measuring that will become increasingly important in the next 50 years that we, we're, not even, we're not even taking stock of or measuring now? And if, if there is, what is that one thing? I, th I think we are masters of measurement. I don't think there's anything in Singapore that is not measured. But my suggestion was totally, as you said, what Australia is doing with what I gather with MEP is to try to Every country measures everything. Its own Bureau of Statistics measures a lot of things. What Australia is trying to do is that given their own unique circumstances, it's the weightage they give on various indices that they take to be a measure of Australia's progress. So I guess what I'm saying is at two levels. One is the more realistic, one is the less realistic. The, more, the less realistic one is that we think we could even, as a small country, affect how other countries are going to change from a GDP-based measurement system to a different one. That's very idealistic, we can talk about it, but I don't think it really can happen. But if Australia itself has already for 10 years been using MAP and trying to use this MAP as a substitute for GDP growth in their own schools, among their young people, among government and so on, then I think it is not unrealistic for us in Singapore to look at our own indices and to create one single index, which we, after a whole Singapore conversation kind of thing, decide that that is going to be our index of well-being and we measure that and aspire to improve upon that every year. So it also be, be, becomes, as I, as I explained, some sort of goal for us in Singapore. Because to, to just simply say, we all know how you're not going to motivate young people anymore by simply saying, well, let's be able to get 2.6 GDP growth this year rather than 2.7 because GDP growth is such an inadequate indicator of total community welfare. It is one, but not total. So if we were to be able, as a society, agree on what are the, the weightage we could give to other indicators, and arrive at an index which we think is appropriate for Singapore, and if we all, in our own national conversations, find that to be the goal that we aspire for, we can actually have quantitative targets and be happy with ourselves or displeased with ourselves as that indicator goes up or down. Thank you. Thank you. There's a lady in front, and then a gentleman there, and then I think Casey as well. Uh, my name is Xu Yong. Now, Mr. Ho, thank you for dealing on the various issues. But there's one issue that I'm very interested in, and that is our government's management and use of our national reserves. Can you please share with us your views on that? Any changes for the next possible 50 years? Oh, I'm glad you raised it up because you know I was actually going to raise it up, but then I found out I didn't know enough about the subject. So I actually raised it up and found out I was totally mistaken. Even though I was a director of GIC for several years, that shows. I, 
the topic about reserves, I had thought was a sacred cow because I have long believed that there must come a point in time when enough is enough. You cannot just save forever and you should be able to use your reserves. Um, I, of course, I did know about it, but I, it, I forgot that currently we do have uh, provision now whereby I think 50% of the annual income from our reserves is actually goes to government budget for government to use. Um, and so I think that already takes away quite a bit of the, the theoretical argument or the theoretical issue as to whether reserves or the income from reserves should be able to be tapped. I have, however, something about the reserves I'm going to suggest later on in a topic about um, demography and other things. I'm actually making a suggestion that part of the income from the reserves could actually be given back to people in a particular form. But, but if I tell you now, then I run out of things to say. <laughs> so I got to save a few good ideas for, for my future lectures. But I will come to that about the reserves uh, on another topic. But not not, I will not, I'm not going to be addressing anymore the fundamental issue as to whether uh, a government should be able to tap on the income from its reserves, because we are really doing that, as I understand it. Yes. So, gentlemen, at the mic. Uh, my name is Peter Yim. Uh, you mentioned just now, uh, Mr. Ho, about this uh, HDB setting the prices. Uh, my question is, how do you handle this subsidy, you know, the subsidized amount? Because if you set prices and you ask developers to sell at these prices, they'll be selling at a loss. Unless, I mean, you have a mechanism where you handle this subsidy, you know? If you can clarify that. Yeah, I think I did a terrible job in explaining my whole idea. I'm so sorry for this. Obviously, I got, I got trapped myself. Because what I was suggesting, it wouldn't happen. It would be, you wouldn't have this issue. Because ultimately, what would simply happen is government decides the price at which a housing unit will be sold. Developers then auction will bid for the land. If government believes that housing is too expensive, then the so-called subsidy that you have need not be a direct subsidy. It would be very simple. Next time round, let's say this time round, government said the price for this affordable housing, not luxury housing, should be $2,000 a square foot. Now we enter into a severe recession, everybody is worse off and so on. Government now decides, but you need pretty elaborate and good models, which you would have if, you're, if you focus on being a price regulator. Government next time round says to the whole development community, you now can sell your units, when you build it over the next three, four years, whatever it is, you can only sell at $1,500 a square foot. So developers will bid lower for the land, correct? Now this government then is already subsidizing because it's going to get less for the land. But it would be very simple. You don't need a lot of subsidies and this program or that program because government basically sets, government regulates pricing, which it must do in a situation of very limited land as we have. You cannot leave it to the free market. Otherwise, prices are going to go through the roof. 
So government will come in and simply say, okay, to, for this project, it will be X, this project, it's Y. Developers will compete among themselves and they will make a margin, but they will not make a extraordinary margin because of competition. And the final land price is what in effect becomes the subsidy to the extent that it is not market price, right? But it's a very simple system where you only get one price regulator and the rest of it, the market basically is private developers. And, and my, my thinking is that we have to go that way because over the next 50 years, society is going to become a lot more complicated. Consumer demand and consumer taste are going to get a lot more complicated. And we now cannot look at HDB being a North Korea style provider of public housing. Now I don't, I'm not criticizing HDB because we all know, if you know that, if we all know the history of Singapore, the number of private developers you have in Singapore were totally inadequate. If you tried at the beginning, if you were Lim Kim San and you asked Hong Leong, CDL, and all these others to come in and build public housing, there's no capability in Singapore to do that. HDB had no choice but to be the single largest developer. But if you look into the next 50 years, should that be the model? That's what I'm questioning. So the problem on the subsidy isn't the one that perhaps, uh, Peter, you saw, but there is still a problem on subsidy. There will, there will always be, to, you know, from an economic perspective, the minute you say you are not pricing, you're not allowing people to price the unit at whatever the market will pay, you're already providing a subsidy. It's easy. If you want to go that way where you don't give a subsidy, then be like Hong Kong. You just simply let the market demand, let the market demand drive prices. There's no subsidy by the government. You get a housing unaffordability index of 15 times. You get thousands of students on the streets. That's fine. There's no subsidy. The minute the government sets that you have to sell your unit at this price, there's already already a subsidy. So the two gentlemen at the mic, and I don't know, Casey also, you wanted to say something. Perhaps we'll let the two gentlemen at the mic speak first and then over to Mr. Chu. Okay, Mr. Ho, you did not touch on how much business or how little business the government should do. You touched on HDB and SIA, but the notion or the common notion is that too much government in business uh, stifles entrepreneurship. Can you comment on that? This is going to sound pretty strange from somebody who's a private entrepreneur and so on. But I have never believed that, I will put, I'll put it this way, I think there is a concern about crowding out effect by government companies that are run so well and so effectively that they, that they move into other areas that SMEs can, can go into. Uh, and I think government is quite aware of that danger. I mean, the best example is when uh, we found out that uh, Safe Enterprises, which is the, the unit, the, the company that used to produce food for the army, they started thinking about opening up roast duck uh, restaurants in all the hawker stalls because they were very good at doing roast ducks and so on. I mean, that really would be a real crowding out effect. But broadly speaking, I think we all have to be realistic. If you look at Singapore's economic history, we did not have a situation even like Hong Kong where in 1949, a lot of Shanghai industrialists moved to, to Singapore, uh, sorry, to Hong Kong and had the basis of a shipping business and some manufacturing business. Singapore, after independence, 
really had a deficit of local entrepreneurs, a deficit of local capital. And so the government-linked companies were set up and they filled an absolutely necessary role. So to me, the development path of where Singapore has gone with GLCs and so on has been critical for our growth. The question here that is an interesting one is whether government should totally divest itself of certain businesses. And you begin, you're beginning to see some of that already. They've divested themselves of CPG, uh, PWD. Um, maybe they will divest themselves um, of other companies that are not considered core. But to me, I don't see that as a 50-year question because I don't see it as a fundamental issue. I think the relationship between the private sector and government-linked companies is not an unhealthy one. I think government is doing its best to try to nurture SMEs to, to come up, and MNCs are still going to be required. You cannot forget the smallness of the Singapore economy. And I don't want, being an entrepreneur, I also don't want to over-romanticize entrepreneurship and think that if you don't have the Singapore Airlines and the NOLs and the Singapore technologies of the world, we, great entrepreneurs, are going to come in there and be able to generate all the employment to keep all our school uh, leavers employed. I think that is romanticizing entrepreneurship. I think we need a role for entrepreneurs, we need uh, SMEs, and we definitely need government-linked companies to have the guts and the willingness to suffer losses to probably go into new areas that your Singapore entrepreneurs will not go into. But it also requires government-linked companies to probably decide that certain businesses they should divest 100% of. But I believe that that philosophy is embedded already within our leadership and it's a matter of a little bit less, a little bit more, so I didn't raise it as a major issue. Perhaps I could just add there that, you know, in the, in the privatization uh, approach, whilst uh, we, we often on the government side had uh, in the past joint regulators and operators, I think when you, when you split the two, it's important to retain the domain knowledge in the regulator side and not to, you know, not to put everything into the privatized entity and then the people in government actually have no clue about how to regulate the industry because they no longer have the technical knowledge. Yeah, I think we forgot to mention, you look at, de you look at deregulation or privatization. The electricity sector, the telecommunications sector, which were totally government-owned, have in fact been privatized. And there is even now some thinking that the privatization has gone too far. All the issue now about SMRT, government was trying to, at one time during the time we were familiar with, there was one time when the, the accepted wisdom in Singapore was to privatize everything. That was the big theory around the world. So we, government privatized and look at what's happening with SMRT. So now there's some consideration that maybe in certain key industries, uh, privatization is not necessarily the best way to go. And, and I think there is a keen awareness of this, but government makes mistakes. There's always the, the flavor of the month around the world is to do something this way. Uh, five years later, the flavor of the month has changed. And it's, it's always going to be a continuing balance, which in my view, we should have a robust debate about it all the time. Good evening, Mr. Ho. My name is Ali Ahmad Yaakob. I'm uh, working with the Debate Association. Um, my question is regarding your idea of uh, you know, the index of success that you want to propose, right? So I was quite interested in it. Um, however, the, the very notion of a prescribed notion, uh, like a prescribed index of success, 
like you know, sort of ignores the fact that there is you know sort of a plurality of opinion in terms of what is success as defined by each individual person. So some people might seek financial success, some people might seek success through other means. Uh, do you think that you know perhaps through creating more and more indices, we are trying to you know catch something that can never actually be caught, right? We are trying to put a label on a notion of success that you know we can't necessarily all agree on because you know we're all so different and all aspire to so many different things. Yeah, uh, I think it's clearly a challenge. The, we, we clearly have a problem today. It, it, you don't even have to talk to lay people who are unhappy with GDP as an indicator. You talk to most economists. Any development economist will tell you GDP and GNP is absolutely inadequate. The, the problem today is that there are a lot of other indicators. World Bank has a World Development Index, but that's really geared more towards developing countries number of doctors you have per population, and the number of clean water you have, and so on. I guess my point to yours is that, yes, we should have a certain amount of diversity, but if, you, if we do not have one single index that serves as a guiding star, as a north star to let us all know whether we are doing well as a society or not, then you have a whole babble of voices as to what indica indicators are good or not good. You have civil society emphasizing this more, you will have uh, you will have industry uh, emphasizing others. So my sense is that even the opportunity for all of us to get together and argue and debate on what a one single indicator should be provides an, a forum for us to discuss what are the key issues facing Singapore. And for young people, maybe people in my generation would take material progress as being more important as an indicator because we came from a low economic base. Maybe younger people today would say, no, that's not so important. Let the weightage of, of, of pure economic progress like GDP have a lower weightage than indicators that indicate uh, the growth of a better civil society. To me, it, at least, the attempt, the journey, is half of the, the goal. And that's why I advocate having that journey, because then, in the debate as to what the final indicator should be, we would be able to understand a little bit more about what drives us as a society. Perhaps a, a brief comment. So, you know, we're all trying to, you know, sort of come up and like, you know, pin down a certain definition of, an absolute definition of success, right? But is the entire discussion in itself, you know, do you, don't you think that could be sufficient as a means with which, you know, everyone sort of individually decides on their own, okay, I want this measure of success, I want that measure of success. And is the difference between, in opinion, necessarily a bad thing in the first place? Um, yeah, difference opinion is a, is a great thing, but if, I guess all I'm saying is if we go that way, then by default you always still have GDP as your only indicator. All right, thanks for entertaining me. Thanks. Casey. Uh, can you please not ask me if there's going to be uh, a loss by the PAP, whether there'll be a military coup? <laughs> Thank you. I don't there think was, there was asked the last time, so it won't be asked now. I'm, I'm Casey Chu. I, for once, my designation has some relevance to, to my question, which is uh, I'm chairman of the substation, which is an arts organization. Um, I, I want to focus on the last point you made, which was very interesting to me, and was a brilliant point. Um, the, the, in Singapore, it's always been the economic argument that has won the day. So openness, in terms of economic openness, of, you know, in, and this being a lecture on 
economy and business. Um, that argument was won a long time ago. So if there's an economic reason for uh, uh, whatever policy, that policy will win the day. <clears throat> Your brilliant suggestion now is that there is an economic, economic policy, there's an economic rationale for political openness and creativity. Um, I love that big chairman of the substation. My question is then, do you see the powers that be buying your argument? I don't have the faintest clue, but I would say this, I don't think anything I say today would get me back to jail, as has gotten you also in trouble. <laughs> Progress in a society is measured in many ways. Um, you might even get a larger grant now from NAC. <laughs> but I think clearly, I would say purely anecdotally from the powers that be and those whom I might have the privilege of knowing, I think there is a clear recognition that there is an economic dimension to openness, inclusion, and diversity. I think there is a buy-in on that. As to how much to open up, I think you will always see tension between even the people who buy into my argument, and I think on the surface of it, I think most of our leadership would buy into that. The difficulty would be in specific policies, each person will have different personal views on a specific issue. And notwithstanding to Singapore with love, which might be, unfortunately, I hope, a anomaly, I would hope that sometimes you have two steps forward and one step back, and I would hope that there is a general recognition that notwithstanding specific cases which might have their own anomaly for occurring, that by and large, an acceptance of diversity and inclusion is something that is generally accepted. And I just felt I need to continue to reinforce that message. The lady. Hi, I'm Zi. I'm a student here at NUS. Um, you've mentioned before how some, in some cities with high housing costs, um, people move to other places within their country for retirement. In Singapore, where cost of living is high in addition to the cost of housing, how likely do you think a large number of retirees in Singapore will move overseas for retirement or if this should be encouraged? I'm not sure. Are you saying because of Singapore housing costs being higher, should, should people no, be... Because some people, simply because of the high cost of living in, living in Singapore, may choose to, have, to enjoy their retirement overseas instead, where house of, well, cost of living is lower. Do you think this... Are you, are you asking me, do I think this people will do that? Or are you, are, do you think there will be a large number of oh, people okay. that? Or if it should be encouraged at all, given that you know, land scarce? Well, you know, I was hoping at one time, I was hoping at one time that when we were supposed to have the Southern Growth Triangle and Bintan was actually supposedly going to become part of Singapore. Um, <clears throat> I invested in a, in a project in Bintan hoping that tons of Singaporeans would move to Bintan to, um, to, to 
sort of retire there. My answer to you is the same thing, I, the answer I gave about the fact that you cannot have a proxy hinterland. I think a small minority of Singaporeans who have the, the financial wherewithal would retire to different countries. Some people go to China, some go to India. I think that's small numbers. I think the only way you will see a genuine large-scale movement of Singaporeans to retire in a different physical location is if that physical location for all sort of practical purposes is going to be like a Singapore for them. And that means that you're going to have the, you're going to have the same legal system, you're going to have the, the social stability, you will have the same medical access, and everything else. When you are a retiree, you don't look, just look for cheaper places. You need to go to look for a place where you have the same sense of community and the same sense of, um, uh, of, of security. As I said, I'm not talking about Singaporeans who are going to migrate to Australia to retire and so on. That is going to be a relatively small number of people because it's not that cheap to retire there. So I guess my answer is, I think we should not look towards Singaporeans retiring overseas as an answer to any issue of housing affordability. We have to look at it as an issue of wanting Singaporeans to retire in Singapore, and therefore we have to ensure that we find the means and the measures and the schemes to ensure that Singaporeans want to retire in Singapore. Okay, thank you. I'd like to now bring this to a close unless there are any last burning questions. If, okay, one, one last one, gentleman in the corner. I'm sorry to keep everyone. Um, name's Adamson. I have a question about labour. Right, so I'm trying to connect uh, two things in my humble attempts to understand a bit of our history. Uh, the MNC model, right, what Singapore gives MNCs is tax breaks and full control. So back then, 70s, 80s, everyone came and we benefited from that. So that's the first you know, fact I understand. The second is amongst my peers, right, we want career progression, we want to do well. Uh, but we reach a certain glass ceiling when attempting to progress in MNCs where unless the company has its roots in Singapore, the mid to high level tier of staff tends to be from wherever the company is from. So there's a certain glass ceiling there. So my question is, is there a possibility that perhaps the government would reassess the MNC model, perhaps institute certain policies to encourage uh, more hiring of uh, Singaporeans? I think that you're addressing different issues, and I need to address the issue of glass ceiling too. Um, if we want more Singaporeans to, to go up the corporate ladder to the C-suite and so on, clearly one of the ways to encourage that is to encourage the growth of more Singapore companies. We should absolutely do that. But it should not be at the expense of trying to reduce the number of multinationals or to constrain the performance of multinationals in Singapore. It's almost analogous to the idea that if you have income inequality in a country, should you just tax the rich and level down, or should you let people level up? My solution for the lack of CEOs in, in companies in Singapore is to level up, have more Singapore companies. But that, I think that would be the broad philosophic approach. That does not necessarily mean, by the way, that Singapore companies necessarily will hire more uh, Singaporeans. I think we should also look at another factor, and that is how employable are our, our, our own people. 
I've been on the board of quite a number of global MNCs. I've been on the board of Standard Chartered Bank and now of Diageo, which is one of the largest companies. And the CEO is an Indian national. And the whole company has got a lot of Indians. Why Indians? Because they are generally more willing to move around the world. Because when you have a lot of Indians in India, and they're highly well-trained, very capable, there's not a lot of job opportunities for them. So they really go and you look at C-suites and a lot of American, the CEO of, uh, of Microsoft was an Indian national. They go around to the world to, the, to really populate the C-suites of so many countries because they are capable, they're willing to move, and they, there's no opportunities in India. If we want our Singaporeans to really go into the C-suites of multinationals, we have to look at Singaporeans who are willing to move every three, five years to a different place. If you work for Unilever, you better be sure that at the age of 25, you join Unilever. If you want to be a CEO at 55, you would have moved to probably 15 locations for Unilever. Are our people willing to do that? I, I see that problem within my own company. I have general managers. I want to be Singaporeans. The Singaporeans all tell me, I want to go to Shanghai, I want to go to New York, but I don't want to go here or here. So, it's a two-sided argument. I think we need to promote Singaporeans as a Singapore national, but I don't think the right way is to say we reduce multinationals to come here because multinationals really today, except for Japanese companies, okay? Japanese companies are incredibly insular, as we all know, as is Japan. But if you look at American companies, especially the English-speaking countries, because if you're German or you're something else, there may still be a language issue. But if you're a UK company or you are a uh, American company, talent is what really drives your rise to the top. And I do not think, honestly, I do not think that if a Singaporean really wants to be the rise to the top of an American MNC, he's going to be, he or she, is going to be denied that opportunity because of your nationality. So we should be a little bit less nationalistic and not say, we've got to be called out, we've got a glass ceiling. If you're a woman, I would say, definitely you've got a problem. Because I do believe there's, there's a glass ceiling for women in a lot of companies. But if you're a Singaporean male, it doesn't matter what ethnic background you are, I think your chances are pretty fair from what I see in C-suites around the world. So on the optimistic note for Singaporean males, and a pessimistic note for Singaporean females. Can I ask you to join me in uh, thanking Kwon Ping?